Uh, this morning we'll be in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 15, verses 11 through 32. If you want to turn there. As you turn there, uh, just to remind you guys, we've been going through First Peter uh, for a while now. And we're getting ready to wrap that, that series up. Uh, and just as, as we close that, uh, I thought it was really, really cool and really important that we just kind of briefly go over some of the things that we've talked about. It's a book that is centered on suffering, uh, its purpose. Uh, we know that the book is about how God uses suffering. God uses suffering for His glory, uh, for our good, for our growth. Uh, these are all things that we see. And I wanted to look at this passage today as I was praying and preparing, going over different things. Uh, the Lord just kept bringing me back to this passage. It's a passage uh, that shows us God's heart and that shows us the human heart uh, of two sons uh, and a father. And there's a lot of suffering that actually ends up taking place in this passage of Scripture. Uh, so, as we dive into that passage of Scripture, I just wanted us to look at the importance of the hearts, the importance of our heart, uh, the heart that we have as we go into suffering. And all those things are revealed in this passage. It's a really, really interesting passage about a father and his unconditional uh, sacrificial love and his two sons. Uh, so, if, you, if you've opened your Bible to Luke chapter 15, and you're looking, uh, I want to look at verses 1 and 2, just to give us some background, so we have an idea of who Jesus is speaking to. So, it says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. And we know that the parable in verses 11 through 32, the parable of the prodigal son, is one of three parables that Jesus gives, these tax collectors and sinners and scribes and Pharisees. All of these parables are revealing more about God's character, how he chases us down, how he pursues us, how he loves us, how he's after us, he's after our hearts. But the people that he's talking to are a very interesting group of people. You have tax collectors who are despised by their fellow Jews because they were the people collecting money for Rome who was oppressing the Jews. You have these Gentile sinners who were not Christians but who wanted to come listen to Jesus. These were people that the Jews despised. They would often go far out of their way so they wouldn't have to pass through Gentile areas. Okay? And then you have the Pharisees and the scribes that says they're grumbling. They're saying this man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. These Pharisees and these scribes, these are the religious elite. These were the people who knew the law, had memorized the law, and followed the law. And they looked down their nose at these other people. They looked down their nose at the tax collectors and the sinners. So this is the group of people that Jesus is about to preach this message to. And what's incredible about this parable is that it has something for each one of them. We look at this parable and we look at the younger son and we look at the older brother and we look at the father. There are so many important things about each one of them. The younger son, the, the entire purpose of the younger son is for the tax collectors and the sinners. Jesus is showing them that, hey, while there are these while you mess up, while you've, while you've strayed away, while you've pursued things that are not of God, 
there's still hope for you. There's still a chance to repent. There's still a chance to turn. And the Pharisees and the scribes who are looking down their nose, listening to Jesus saying, why would you talk to these people? Why would you eat with these people? Why would you meet with these people? He says, you're the older brother. You think that you've got it all together, but your heart's corrupt too. And he says, there's only one who's pure in the passage, and that's the Father. So we talk about suffering, and each one of these characters in this parable suffers. That's what's amazing. There's so much going on. We could have probably done this and broken it up into two or three weeks, but I'm just going to keep you for like two hours and it'll be okay. Right. So we're really going to try to move through it, but I want you to understand, like, it's incredibly deep, incredibly, incredibly deep. I would encourage you to go home and just just read it again uh, because it's incredible. It's wonderful, and you've heard it preached on before so many different times, I'm sure. But it's a great, great passage. So, with all that being said, I want to look at the younger brother's heart first. So, if you look at verses 11 and 12, they say this. And he said, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. So, here we have this younger son. We see that he asked his father to give him the share of property that is coming to him. So the son is asking for his inheritance now. In this Middle Eastern culture, the oldest son received two-thirds of the property, and then this youngest son would receive a third. So that was, that's how it went based off the culture. But here's the problem. What the youngest son just asked for is awful. It's the equivalent of wishing that his father was dead. It's the equivalent of you going to your parents or your children coming to you and saying, hey, that will, I'd like what's coming to me now. That would not go over well, right? Some of you would be like, there's nothing coming to you anyways. We're poor. You can't have anything. That's tough luck, buddy, right? Seriously, this is awful. What he's saying is, hey, I I want your stuff. Now, you have to remember, he's raised these, these, this son up. He's ate with the son. He's worked with the son. He's loved and cared for the son. You're going to see this father's heart. It's not like this father is this wicked man that this son is just trying to get away from. This father is a godly man. This father that they talk about represents God himself and his unconditional love for us, the way he treats us, the way he pursues us. This son is asking for something that can't compare to what he already has in his relationship with his father. So, diving into this, the Greek word that they end up using here in verse 12 is bios, which means physical life, and it's placed here just to include the fact that everything that this son is asking for is a culmination of all of the previous generation's work. So everyone has worked, who came before him, all of his relatives before, to get them to where they are now. And he's asking for a third of it. And it's not like they just have cash laying around. No, this means that the father has to take all of his assets, a third of them, and then sell them away. So he's losing his land, he's losing his animals, he's losing his tools, equipment, all these things, they're gone. He's losing them to give them to this son. Now, this was not something that was culturally acceptable. Middle Eastern culture, I mean, even now, But especially then, this was wildly inappropriate to do this. Some commentators say 
the way that this would have went down was that this kid would have received a backhanded slap across the face, maybe been beaten, and then would have been cast out, disowned from the family completely. But that's not how the father responds. The father says, as we see in verse 12, we see that it says he divided his property between them. He just splits it up. He just gives it to them. So, see, this is a horrible thing to ask. This, this son who's been with this father who's loved him and cared for him and the reason he's so well off where he is now and has everything that he needs is because of this father. And he's saying, I'm done. I, would, I wish that you, were, that you were gone so I could have my inheritance. And he's realized, you know, I, I think that these things are more important than you and this is, this is what I'm going with. So, we see that this son doesn't love his father, but he loves his father's things. He loves the things of the world. And we've titled this message, Suffering from a Disordered Love, because throughout this passage, we're going to see how our loves are all messed up. The things that we love, right? In the South, they typically say God, family, friends, or, or whatever it is that comes after it, right? But we say God is up here. And I'm sure that these guys would have said, oh yeah, we're, we're Jewish, we, we believe in God, right? Or they believed in, in Yahweh. They believed that God was supposed to be at the top, right? Something that we believe. But their actions and their lives don't show it, these two younger sons. So we're going to dive into that. So this brings us to our first disordered love with the younger brother. And it's that we love things or we have a greater love for things, or our love for God. So basically, what we ask is, what can God's things do for me, instead of being content in God? So, what does it look like to love the things of the world more than to love God? It can look different from person to person. The first one is that we run from God and toward other things. This is the most common one. This is what you would typically see. It looks like us fleeing and ignoring God and His commands for our lives. We run away from Him. It looks like us willfully choosing to step away from God, to step away from the close relationship that He desires us to have with Him and the better way of life that He lays out for us. Instead of seeking to look for Him, we look for immediate gratification in the things of the world. It looks like us not considering God's Word and instead considering the desires of the flesh that we have in the moment. It looks like us seeing what others do and saying, that doesn't seem like it's too bad of an idea. I know that God says I shouldn't do that, but what if I just tried it once and then we end up trapped and stuck? We end up following the world's ways and the world's plan instead of God's ways and God's plan. The second thing is that we desire what God can do for us more than we desire God himself. And this is what we're really going to see with the older brother. But I want to touch on it now. Because this should scare us. So why? Why should this scare, scare us? Just, this should scare us because just like the son, we spend time with the father, right? So the son spent time with his father. He ate with his father. He obeyed his father. He worked with his father. But he never loved his father. So how do we know that? Because he was more obsessed with his father's possession. He's willing to leave his father behind completely. And as we'll see in the following verses, he goes to a faraway country. He's not just saying, let me get some money from you and I just want to start up my own thing. He's saying, I want to get away from you so I can go do whatever I want so nobody can hold me accountable. 
It's the same thing that we do with God. We say, I'm running from you and from every, every other person that could hold me accountable and point out that, hey, this isn't the right thing for me. So we know that he's more obsessed with the father's possessions than with his father. And we can do the same thing if we're not careful. We can come to church. We can pray. We can read our Bibles. We can come to Sunday school. We can go to all these different classes. We can tithe, right? We can listen to Christian music. That can be the, the main thing that we listen to, right? We can read our Bibles. We can follow God's commandments. But still have our hearts focused on God's things and what He can give us instead of on God Himself. So what I mean by this is that we can be more focused on receiving the blessings, health, success at work, money, power, status, or any other form of stability than we are in having a relationship with our Lord and Savior. So how do we tell? Because this is serious, right? I think there are two ways that we can tell we're doing this. The first is that we look when we decide to sin. Look at when you're typically deciding to sin. So for this younger son, he reached a crossroads at some point where he had to say, I can have the relationship with my father and and my brother and our family, or I can pursue sin. And we know that he's choosing sin, right? And for us, it's the same thing. At some point, there comes a time, there's a fork in the road, and we're, we're tempted, right, with sin. But in order to get whatever it is that we're after, we have to disobey God. So look at your life and look at, when do I constantly fall into this rhythm of disobeying God over and over and over again what's presented to me and what am I pursuing wherever the love the money the power or the status is presented to us and we choose that over following God's way that's when we know that's when we know that we have a problem the second thing that we can do is that we look at our prayer lives So we say, how do I tell if I've put these things before God? Look at the object of your prayers. What do you pray about? Do you approach prayer as a time to submit a list to God? You go down the list, thing after thing, and you never actually stop and slow down and rest in God's presence. Rob preached on this a while back. It must have been a year ago, at least. But he talks about sitting in the presence of God. Super, super great, super powerful. And there's a great illustration of this wonderful man in the throne room with kind eyes and open arms, and all he wants is to know you and to talk to you. And he's powerful. He has so much power, but he also has so much love and such a desire for us. And we walk up to the door, and we're really excited. And then we slide a piece of paper with all the things we want on under the door and we run away. And we never open the door and spend time with the Father, with the God of the universe who created us, who sent his son to die for us. He says, like, that's the access you have. Tim Keller has another great illustration. He says, we have the type of access that a child has to the king, right? You think of a powerful ruler, It's midnight, right? You're thinking ancient times here. Who's going to wake up the king? If you wake up the king, you're in trouble. No one can wake up the king except for the child that he loves, 
right? And Keller says, that's the kind of access that you have to God. At any time, you can go to God and you're looked upon as this valuable child who is immensely more important than anything else that he has going on, right? And we know that we're immensely more important than anything else to God because he sent Jesus to die for us. He's saying that's the kind of access that you have. So do we sit in his presence when we pray or do we run down the list of the things that we want? Look at your prayer life. As we move on, in the verses 13 through 16, these verses show us what happens when we begin to treasure the Father's things before the Father. So as you go throughout this week, look at your prayer life. Look at where you're typically tempted, where you tend to stumble. And now as we move into verses 13 through 16, before we jump into them, we're going to look at verse 12, but these verses are about to show us what happens what happens when we treasure the Father's things. So verse 12 says, he, he divided his property between them. This is the Father's response to the Son. He responds the same way that God responds to us. When we desire to leave him and pursue other things, things that we were never meant to pursue, things that were never meant to capture our hearts, things that can't capture our hearts the way God does, he just lets the Son go. Why? Because even though he loves the Son, he's not going to force him. He's not going to force him to be in his presence. He's not going to force him to be with him. Right? The Father desires a deep, personal, intimate relationship with us. The same way this Father desires this relationship with his Son. So, he lets the Son go because he's not going to force this. God desires this relationship, but if the Son doesn't want it, he doesn't want it. As we look at verses 13 and 16, they say, Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate. And no one gave him Anything. So when it says he gathered all he had, the Greek word uh, synego means that he had to turn everything into cash, which is what we talked about earlier. They had to liquidate everything, right? So this would have been the only way that this younger son would have been able to pack everything up and go, right? He's going to a faraway country. He can't take all this equipment with him. That's how we know that he's not going to start his own farm. He's not going to start his own business. He's not going to do something useful and beneficial and glorifying to God. He's not going to work in a way that glorifies God. He's going to pursue the pleasures and the desires of the world, his own sinful pleasures. So we know that he flees, and he's going to do whatever he wants with his inheritance. His desire is to be completely free from all accountability. As we see, he wastes all of his money on unnecessary things, on sinful things. As verse 30 says, he... uh, he wastes them on, on prostitutes and other things as well. And he loses it all. And what happens to this young man is the same thing that happens to us every time that we pursue sin. His so-called friends abandon him. No one's willing to give him anything once he's in need. Once the money dries up, there's no one there to help him or show him kindness. He realizes that all the promises that sin gave him were lies. 
right? That's what happens to us. We pursue sin and we pursue sin and then we realize, oh, that wasn't actually satisfying. It was, it was brief. It was pleasure, but it wasn't joy because joy lasts. Joy comes from, from the Lord. And pleasure is this immediate gratification that's there one minute and it's, and it's gone the next. So we're lied to and tricked the same way when we pursue sin. We end up empty-handed and unsatisfied and that's because sin was never meant to satisfy our hearts the way that God was, the way that God is. So now the son who's far from home is hungry and he begins working for another man feeding his pigs. Now, you know that he's Jewish and for him to have to feed pigs would have been terrible for him. Incredibly heartbreaking and discouraging and embarrassing because pigs were unclean. They weren't, they weren't allowed to eat pigs. They weren't supposed to be in contact with them. And it gets so bad that he desires the pods that the pigs are eating. So for those of you who are from the area and, and you've been around pigs, that's, it's got to be pretty rough. It's got to be pretty rough for you to want to eat pig slop, right? The smell is awful. It looks even worse than it smells. So things have to be awful. Things have to be bad, right? So you move on to verses 17 and 19. They say, but when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven, and before you I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. So here we see something change. We see something flip. This young man has gone through suffering, right? And this is one of the things that we've talked about in First Peter, that there are times when we're not doing what we're supposed to be doing, and God brings us low, and we have to hit rock bottom before we finally realize, I'm not doing what I'm supposed to be doing. This isn't what God wants for me. God has called me to something better, and now I realize that my lot with sin is worthless. It leads me starving. Physically, emotionally, spiritually, it leaves me empty. It leads to death. A physical death, a spiritual death, that's what he's seeing. He's saying, this is really bad. He comes to himself, meaning he sobers up, right? He's taking a minute and he's saying, okay, this isn't right. And what makes him sober up? How his father treats his hired servants. So hired servants were poor, unskilled laborers, right? So they didn't have any skills, and they had to be looked after pretty closely, right? Because they're unskilled laborers. They can't do a whole lot, but you can hire them, and they're meant to be paid a minimum wage, right? A daily minimum wage. And what the son says is that, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? The father, his father, was generous to these hired servants who couldn't even do much. He hired them, and he paid them more than the minimum wage. This was a man that was gracious with what he had. And the son looks at it and sees his father's love, not just for him, but for others. And this is what drives him to repentance. This is going to be super, super important because at this point in time, they live in a guilt and shame culture, which is kind of similar to what we live in. You mess up, you do something wrong, you deserve to be punished. People turn on you. You have to pay 
that back, right? And here, the son immediately says, you know, I I understand that I've done wrong. I've sinned against heaven. I've sinned against God. And I've sinned before you, meaning his own father. He says, I'm not worthy to be called your son. He's feeling guilt and shame. He's feeling separated from his family. He says, treat me as one of your hired servants. Don't even treat me as family. But I know that you're so gracious and so loving that even if I was a hired servant, I'd be taken better care of than if I stick with sin. So here we see that the son remembers the goodness and mercy and grace of his father. And now we see a young man's heart that is willing to repent. So remember that Jesus is giving this parable to the Pharisees and the scribes and the Gentile sinners, right? That's who he's given this parable to. Now they expect this son to go home and to grovel and to be put outside the gate, not to be welcomed back, but to be put outside the gate and then to work off everything that he lost and to pay back all the shame that he brought upon his family. That's what they believe because they have this religious mindset. So they say, okay, he'll, he'll receive some forgiveness and mercy and grace, but only after paying back and fixing all the damage that he caused. That's what they're expecting. That's the boat that they're in. They're rooting. They're, they're eager to see what happens. And that can be our mindset as well. And Jesus is about to shock them and shock us with what happens next in the story. So I want you to look at verse 20. It says, And he arose and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. So it says, While he was still a long way off, his father saw him. His father was actively looking for him. Because you guys didn't know, God is actively looking at you with love in his eyes and open arms and a desire for you to come to him. That's the heart that's being shown here. He's saying the father was actively looking for him with his arms wide open, desiring to see his son come back, waiting for the day, never knowing when he's coming back, but always hoping that he's coming back, right? Not only was the father watching every day, hoping his son would return, but what he's about to do is also the opposite of what everyone else wanted. He's about to take all the guilt and shame off of his son. So we talked about the culture a little bit and how they desire to earn forgiveness and mercy and grace. They desire to earn God's favor. Now, it was a common practice in a case like this for other families and villagers to berate and scorn and abuse the person who had done this, the younger son, right? But here, what we're about to see is that the father takes off running in order to prevent this from happening. His desire is to protect his son from being shamed, taunted, and abused by others. So in verse 20, remember it says this, He arose and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him, felt compassion, and ran and embraced him and kissed him. For a nobleman like this father to run was socially unacceptable. He would have had to pick his robe up and people would have seen his legs and that was too much for them. 
That's not appropriate in that day and time. It's shameful for him to run. So what's the father doing? He's getting out of his gate, taking off, going to see his son so that he can be with him before anyone else can do anything to him. Everyone is watching him take off and they're pointing and laughing and they're shaking their heads in disgust. And what's he done? He's taken all the attention off of his son and put it on himself, right? In case you guys are wondering, this is what Jesus has done for us. All of the guilt and the shame that you feel from your sin, Jesus took that on the cross. That's what this passage is meant to point out. All the guilt and the shame that you're meant to feel, that Satan tries to make you feel from your mistakes, from the wrong that you've done, right, from your sins. Jesus says, no, we're not doing that. The Father says, no, you don't have to feel that. You can feel loved and accepted. God's coming to meet, God has already come to meet you and sending Jesus to die on the cross for you. That's the picture of God leaving to meet you, was sending his son Jesus to earth for us so that we wouldn't have to feel the guilt and the shame and the crushing weight of our sin. So, not only does he leave and take the guilt and shame that his son was supposed to feel, but this is the son who's poor, been rolling in the mud with the pigs, right? Eating pig slop, definitely smells awful. And what's he do? He embraces him and he kisses him. That's nasty, for one, right? I mean, if you, if you don't have a problem with that, then that's okay, but I think that's, that's pretty gross. But, no matter how stinking bad he smells, the Father loves him and wants him to feel loved. Guys, we're just as much of a mess because of our sin. And God embraces us and holds us and cares for us in the same way. That's what's important to grasp here. So, remember that this same son wasted everything that the father gave him. This is the same son whose actions told the father, I wish you were dead. I would rather have your stuff. That would be better. This father's been betrayed by his son. This father's been stabbed in the back, and yet here we find him saving his son not only from starvation, but humiliation from physical death and spiritual death. This is God's heart. This is God's desire. When we sin, it's not to make you pay. It's not to make you pay. God is just. There's a payment for sin. But He sent Jesus to be that payment. And all you have to do is trust in Him. Now, I tell you all that, and I want you to look at Matthew chapter 9, verse 13, which we're going to put up here. It says, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. This is a super important verse. Jesus is telling this to the Pharisees and the scribes, right? The people who believe in following the law. And the law is good, but no one can follow the law perfectly. And Jesus is saying, I desire to give you mercy. I don't desire sacrifice. I didn't call, come to call the righteous, but I came to call the sinners. I came to call the ones who know that they're sinners. I came to call the ones who can say, I failed. God, I need you. Jesus, I need you. That's what he's saying. And Jesus is saying this 
to people who know they've messed up and to people who don't believe that they've messed up yet, right? And this son who's done all this wrong is being met by a father who loves him and cares for him and who's been stabbed in the back repeatedly. We talk about suffering. The character who suffers the most in this parable is the father. It's the father. He suffers more than anyone. You've seen how he's poured out love upon the son and he's betrayed him. Then you've seen how he's waited day after day desiring his son, hoping he would come back. And he loves him and loves him well. We're going to continue to unpack that in verses 21 through 22. But I just want to drop this right now because we're we're about to expand on it. We're called to suffer. We're called to suffer. And our suffering brings glory to God by the way that we handle that suffering. When you suffer, what's your response? This passage deals with relationships between people, right? We have relationships with one another, with other believers who are also broken sinners. We're all broken in different ways, and while Jesus' blood covers us and heals us, people are still going to do things that hurt you, that stab you, that cut you to the core. How are you going to respond to them? Are you going to love them the way that the Father is loving this person? Because that's what God is calling us to do, right? So I want to keep looking at this because this passage lays out God's love in the middle of his own suffering and hurt for these people. And we've been called to love the way that God loves, which means that we've been called to love when people cause us to suffer, when people hurt us in the same way. That's a huge part of this passage. It's a huge part of this passage. So, verse 21 says, And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. Okay, so the son says, I'm no longer worthy to be called yours. Sinned against heaven before you. No longer worthy to be called your son. How does the father respond? By immediately giving him the best things. That would have only been given to his son. The robe that he gives him is his own. It's the best robe. The ring that he gives him is his ring. The shoes that he gives him would not have been given to a slave or a hired servant. That's what he said. That's how he's loved him. That's how he's cared for him. So when people hurt us and they cause us to suffer, do we welcome them back in the same way like family, right? That's what it's about. That's what it's about. And it's hard. And I know you have to look at me and I'm young, right? And you're like, what are you you talking about? You haven't dealt with that much suffering, right? I understand it. I do. I I 100% agree with you. We can't compare what we deal with. We can't pretend to know exactly what what's happening in everyone's lives, but we can look at Scripture and we can say, God suffered for us even though we were rebellious enemies of Him. And His desire is for us to love one another, whether that's lost believers or other, lost people or other believers, in the same way that He loved us. In the middle of the suffering, in the middle of the hurt, in the middle of the pain, We're called to love the way that he has loved.
So, we're called to give the best of what we have, to meet them with open arms, right? Let's keep going. Verse 23 and 24 says, And bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. So the fattened calf here would have fed like 100 to 200 people. They didn't eat meat all the time. This was a big deal. They're basically throwing a party for the whole village. So the village that was about to berate him and shame the son, the father says, hey, you guys come. Come eat with us and welcome my son back. He's turned the village against itself. That's what he's done. This is what your love will do for people. Everyone else that we see, well, a majority of people, when people wrong them, they turn against them. They're done with them. As believers, we're meant to bring the kingdom, right? We're meant to love people radically the way Jesus loves us. As we do that, people fall in love with what we're doing. Why? Because they see God's love in the middle of what we're doing. So why do they show up? Because they're like, this is crazy. This doesn't make sense. He's going to feed all of us even though we were about to hurt him and his son because they didn't fit our, our picture and our culture and what we do. And he says... It's okay, why don't you guys come eat? I know you're about to attack my son as he came into the village. Why don't you guys come eat? That's his heart. Why don't you guys come welcome my son back with me? What an incredible picture of the gospel. That's what it is. That's what Jesus has done for us, right? Because we were against God. He says, why don't you guys come be a part of my family? To the people that crucified Jesus. He said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. He's praying for forgiveness to the Father on their behalf with the hope and the desire that the people who killed him would come to know him personally, deeply, intimately. So, this is the type of love that we should have for those who hurt us. Now, we struggle with this, and we should, because if we leave it here and we say, all right, you guys go home, you go try and do this. Good luck. You're going to have a real hard time. You're going to have a real hard time if you're in the Word every day and you're surrounded by other believers, right? We struggle with this, and here's why. Because we're the older brother. A lot of the times we're the older brother. Now, the older brother in verses 25 through 30 that we're about to see come in, he's an, he's an interesting character. This is often us. So I want to read these verses to you says, his older son was in the field. He's working. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. So he hears the shindig that's going on. He's like, wow, they're partying over there. What's happening? He calls one of the servants and asks what these things meant. And the servant says to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you and I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who's devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed a fattened calf for him. So he's ticked. This older brother, I want to break down his response because his response has a lot of our responses, right? He says, Dad, he caused you to suffer. He caused me to suffer. He took a third of everything that we have. That means that we didn't make as much money this year, right? 
There's no way. We lost a third of everything that we have. On top of this, the brother took his third. Everything else that's left is the older brother's. Now the father can still do what he wants with it because he's the patriarch. He's the father in the culture. But everything that's left is his. And what's the father doing? He's giving these things to the younger brother. He kills the fattened calf. The older brother's ticked. That was his fattened calf. He's looking at this as like, okay, I've got this, 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 and this, and this. It's like, dad just took that from me, and dad just took that from me, and he's giving it to him. Why is he doing that? You're about to see his heart. This is our heart. We say that we believe. We say that we love. We say that we know that we love God and, and we know what it means to love other people, right? And we know, and you, you might be saying, I know that Scripture says in First John, anyone who says that he loves God and hates his brother, he does not love God, right? This is, this is a textbook. Perfect example of that. This guy hates his brother. He cannot say that he loves the father while he hates his brother, right? Because he's caused him to suffer. He's caused him to struggle. And not only that, he's taking the things that are his. He's taking things that technically belong to the older brother, right? That robe, that ring, those were the older brothers. They were meant to go to the older brother when the father passed at this point. So, what happens when we're hurt by others? From this older brother standpoint, Verse 28 and 29. and verse 30, we see that we become quick to point out their sins. We become quick to try and put them down a little bit. It says, you're going to give it to him? When he squandered everything on prostitutes and sin? Why would you give that to him? And we'll put people down. Because they've made us suffer. We're quick to bring up how they've wronged us. We're quick to bring it up. The other problem is that we begin to think that God owes us. This is the disordered love that we have. Verse 28 and 29 says, I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat. What he's saying is, you owe me, God. You owe me, like we talked about earlier. I've been following you, and I'm not getting what I want. How's, that's not how this thing's supposed to work. And we have this contract with God, right? I do these things, I keep the law, and you give me what I want. That's not how it works. We soon find that the problem goes even, even deeper than that, right? In verse 30, we get down to the heart problem. And that's that this, this older brother, he, sings every, he sees everything as his, not God's, right? The fattened calf for him. He devoured your property with prostitutes. You killed the fattened calf for him. We know that he hates his brother, and doesn't really care about his father. Why? Because he says, this son of yours, that's not my brother. He's being disrespectful to the father. He's not even calling him his father. This son of yours, you, you owe me, and you're giving things to this guy? He has an unwilling heart. He has an unwillingness to sacrifice for others. This isn't the heart that the father had. And it's not the heart that we should have. So how do we combat this, right? Because you can fall into this. You can be trapped by this. And we look to the Father. That's the key here. Look at verses 31 and 32. It says, And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. 
For this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. What the father's saying is you've missed it. You've missed the whole point. You missed the entire point of everything that I've taught you, everything that we've been doing. I've loved you and your brother. In verse 31, he says, you are always with me. What's it about? What's the most valuable thing? It's the relationship that he has with the Father. And he says, all that is mine is yours. But everything that we do is not meant to be about us. You are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. That doesn't mean that everything can be used selfishly by the older brother. We see this in verse 32 where he says, it was fitting to celebrate and be glad because your brother was dead. What's the point? What's the purpose? For the relationship to be reconciled. What's the purpose of this passage? To show that God's desire is for us. For us to know Him and have this relationship with Him and to be reconciled back together with Him. That's the purpose. That's the desire. So what's the purpose of you suffering when other believers hurt you? For God's glory and for us to continue to love them and serve them and care for them and greet them with open arms, right? So that they can experience God's unconditional love. Because it's not conditional love. Conditional love is you hurt me, I'm done. I'm done. That's it. I don't want it anymore. Unconditional love is what God has for us. Jesus died on the cross for every sin, right? And here in this passage, we see that all the ways that the younger son messed up, the father's forgiven and cared for him, and not just said, okay, it's forgiven, but shown him grace. He's given him far more than he deserves. Far more than he deserves. He says, the purpose was that you come back together, that you have relationship with God and with one another. That's the purpose. What's incredible about this passage is that Jesus doesn't give us the solution with the older brother because he's giving this to the scribes and the Pharisees. He's saying, you decide what's going to happen. This is you. This is your life. Are you going to show love and compassion and forgiveness and sacrifice in the middle of suffering when others hurt you? That's what he's telling the Pharisees. Or are you going to say, no, I'm done. And as the older brother who's done all the right things, are you still going to be, are you still going to belong to the Lord? Are you still going to pursue Him and love others? Are you going to love God and love people? Because those things are paired together. You can't love God and not love people and you can't love people and not love God and call yourself a Christian. Those things are paired together because our love for God is what changes us. His love changes us and allows us to love others. So, it was never about the pain or the things that were lost or what's his or what's not his. It was always about loving the other brother in the middle of suffering. So, I want to revisit verse 12b, which is just that second half of verse 12. Because as we see that the father at the end of verse 32, 31 and 32 has said, your heart's not right. You don't understand that it's not about you having all these things. Verse 12b shows us something incredible. Right? Because we say, how could I ever do this? How could I ever love like this? 
How could I ever be willing to sacrifice and care for people the way that this father does? The way that Jesus has sacrificed and cared for me. How could I ever do that? All right? Verse 12b says this. He divided his property between them. I want to explain this. You might be thinking, why would the father do that if he knew that the son was going to go off and squander every single thing that he gave him? That just doesn't make any sense. Why would you not prevent him from sin? And we touched on it earlier. He's not going to hold him to a bunch of moral rules because he knows that if he hasn't captured his heart, then what's the point? Because that's what's happened with the older brother. The older brother doesn't really care about the father. He cares about holding the rules and how he looks and the things that he can get out of his relationship with God. He's not there for God. And the father wants him to be there for him. So the father knows something that the son doesn't. It's the same thing that he knows that hopefully we know now for our own lives. The father knows that these things that the son is pursuing won't satisfy him when he divides the property. He knows that his son will squander his inheritance now or he'll squander it later when he's dead and gone. So he chooses to make his own life harder by selling off the land and the animals and the other assets. And this makes his life more difficult, but he does it so he can watch his son throw his life's work away. He watches his son throw his own life's work away. Why would he do this? And he does it because he hopes that one day the son will come back and realize how much the father loved him and how he did everything for him. Even allowing him to walk off and do things on his own was an act of love. Like I said, he does it because he hopes that one day the son will come back and realize how much his father loved him and how he did everything for him. And this is exactly what Jesus did for us. Do you realize that Jesus sacrificed his life's work for you? That's what I realized this week. I never thought about it that way. But Jesus sacrificed his life's work for you. What do I mean by that? Jesus came to the earth. He left his perfect relationship with the Father, right? And he took on flesh. He came here to experience pain, to experience temptation, and to live a perfect holy life, and then to die and receive the punishment for sin that we deserve. The physical punishment, right? The emotional turmoil, and then the spiritual wrath of God. To be separated from the Father, so you would not have to be separated from the Father. That's what Jesus came to experience. For us. So I say he threw away his life's work, not like he threw it away needlessly, but he gave up his life's work for us. That's what he's saying. His perfect, holy, sinless life, he gave it up in the hopes that one day we would see how much God loves us. That we would turn from our sin to him, realizing that God said we were worth his whole life's work, his earthly life's work, even though we were against him for years. So if we were in the Father's situation here, we would have responded with anger and abuse. We would have hit the son or verbally abused him. We would have beaten him. We would have turned our hearts away from him. And that wouldn't have helped, right? But the father didn't do that. The father suffered for his son's sins on his behalf so that he could experience redemption. 
He bore the agony of his son's sins so he eventually could be reconciled to his son. And this is what Jesus did for us. So what's important here is that you see that Jesus gave his life's work for you, right? Because you will never be able to sacrifice the way that this father sacrificed for his son, the way Jesus sacrificed for you, unless that hits your heart and that becomes your motivation. You'll never love people that radically until the greatest treasure of your life is Jesus. And you see that you are infinitely valuable to him. You're the most valuable thing. He gave up everything for you. When that hits your heart, that changes you. You decide at that point that there's nothing better than Jesus and following him because only Jesus loves you that way. No one else will ever love you that way. No significant other, no friend. I wish that I was that good of a friend. I strive to be. I could never do that for anyone. My closest friends know how hard I try. And that it's only motivated by Jesus' love for me and my desire to love people that way. So what I want you to see here is that we're all the younger and the older brother at some point, in some way or another. You sin, you mess up. You need to see how you're the younger brother in order to be motivated and changed and transformed by God and his love to love other people that way. Because until you see how much you need Jesus and what Jesus has done for you and given you, you'll never be able to give that amount of love and sacrifice to other people. You'll never be able to say, I have all this stuff. It's not mine, it's God's. Until you see how Jesus said, I had everything in heaven and I gave it up for you because I saw you as more valuable and I wanted a relationship with you. So you'll never be able to say, hey, you're important and I know you messed up. I love you and God loves you. Why don't you come back and spend time with us? Why don't you come back and eat with us? Why don't you come to our house and spend time with us? We know that you messed up. I know that you didn't mean it. God still loves you. I still love you. Jesus died for that. You'll never be able to do that until you believe wholeheartedly that Jesus has done that for you and that will change you. That's the only thing that can change you. I call that gospel motivation, right? With our youth kids, we call it gospel gusto. It's the only thing that will get you there. It's the only thing that will change you. Sanctification only happens because of the power of the gospel. So we're about halfway through, and we can take a brief intermission. You guys good with that? So as we wrap up, I want us to all see that we're the younger brother, but we're also the older brother. You can be anywhere in here, but our desire is to be like the Father, to know Him intimately and personally, and to see how He loves us, and to love people the way the Father loves His two sons, right? Because even with the older son, He says, whoa, let's take a step back. I want you to see how you missed it. He points it out. Notice how He doesn't get in a yelling match with His son. He says, whoa, 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 whoa. You're always with me. I love you. Everything that I have is yours. I understand that you're upset. Could you imagine if your kid came to you and said, you, I did everything right and you won't even give me this or this, right? And this father says, okay, whoa, 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 calm down. You're always with me. All that I have is yours. Let's celebrate your younger brother because all that we have is meant to be used for God's glory and to show people God's love so that they can know him because there's nothing better than that. That was his desire. So the fact today is that we can choose to run from God 
Uh, but we don't have to anymore because he's made us free of all guilt and shame that no matter what we've done, his arms are open to us. And because his arms are open to us, when we fail and when others fail, our arms can be open to them. Let me close, let me close in prayer.